the last time we were together last week, I had said that um, part of the sermon would be topical and then uh, we'd go back to expository verse by verse. I lied. <laughs> um, I got doing the sermon and realized that I was going to be selling you short if I tried to do that part in 15 minutes. And so, once again, the whole thing's topical. And then next week, ho- hopefully two weeks, two weeks, we'll um, get back into expository preaching. Anyway, am I not an apostle? Part two is the title. At the end of last week's sermon, I conveyed to you that before we move on from the subject of apostleship, we would look at one last thing, and that is, why are there no apostles today? We're going to answer that question. Why are there no apostles today? And the reason why we need to answer that question is because there are actually many people, I say that without reservation, many people out there today who, within Christendom, who are claiming to be apostles uh, and, and claiming to be apostles in the same vein as the 12 apostles, okay? And that's a problem, okay? I, um, I said same vein as the 12 because of how these modern apostles define their apostleship. If you remember in the sermon before last, I told you that the Bible has two different senses or nuances, remember that, of the Greek word for apostle. Uh, the same word is used to describe both of those nuances in the Bible, and that's apostolos. More specifically, the word apostle in Scripture is used to designate the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus, plus the apostle Paul, who I call the 13th apostle, who I showed you last week was also chosen by Jesus, right? And this usage of the word apostle is one nuance or sense of the word, i.e. an office, authority, granted by Christ. That's one nuance. The word is used in this way also, I should say, I have to watch my voice inflection, the word used in this way also describes the authoritative nature, okay, of this apostolic office. There's authority behind the 12 apostles, right? And we, we saw this, or we saw that this office of the 12 was not only one of authority, but in addition, those who held this God-ordained office were also given special powers to perform miracles by Jesus himself. Very important to remember. Then we saw that there's another usage of the word apostle that does not designate an office or any of the powers that go with it, but instead it's used in a way that describes those who are sent as ambassadors 
with a specific message as representatives, which is the true meaning of the word apostolos. It's, a, it's an ambassador, a messenger, someone sent with a message. The message is the gospel, okay? So it's unlike the 12 apostles is what I want you to see, okay? These apostles that I'm talking about now, the ambassadors who are sent to take a message of the gospel out there, you really could replace the word apostle with the word missionary because it's the same nuance. I actually heard John MacArthur say one time that he thinks that the word should be changed to missionary. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that because he knows a lot more Greek than I do. Um, we see an example of this usage of the word listed among the spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, okay? This is where Paul says, and he gave some as apostles. He's not talking about the 12 with an authoritative office to perform miracles. He's talking about ambassadors, emissaries taking the gospel. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This isn't necessarily the type of apostle that we're going to concern ourselves with most this morning. We want to be concerned about those who call themselves apostles and as such believe or at least pass themselves off as those who represent an authoritative apostolic office in the same vein of the original 12 apostles. You with me? They preach and teach that God has chosen them to be apostles, just like he chose the 12, and to uh, occupy an office, the office, the apostolic office. And they also claim that God has given them the same miraculous powers that he gave the 12 apostles, powers to heal the sick and even raise the dead. You go on YouTube. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, these types of so-called apostles are all over the television and the internet. And some of them are leading multi million dollar ministries. These facts in and of themselves warrant us in addressing the subject. Okay? When you got a bunch of people running around claiming to be Christians who are raking in millions and millions of dollars and they're calling themselves apostles after the same 12 apostles that Jesus consecrated for ministry, it's something we need to talk about as Christians. In this church and in our faith tradition as Reformed Baptists, that's what we are, uh, following the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith, we do not believe that there are legitimate apostles today like that of the 12 apostles that were appointed by Christ. We are in good company 
in our Protestant belief on that subject. The overwhelming majority of Protestant evangelical Christians, no matter what faith tradition or denomination, believe as we do, that there are no apostles today holding a similar apostolic office as the 12. However, lest you dismiss the gravity of this subject too quickly, please allow me to remind you of the fact that the largest, the largest, and the second largest faith traditions on planet Earth believe in apostolic succession. They are the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. There are others too. There's certain Lutheran synods and sects like the Swedish Lutherans. And believe it or not, a lot of Protestants don't realize this, but the Anglican Church, the true Anglican Church, believes in apostolic succession also. This means that the majority of professing Christians around the world, if they adhere to the dogma and official doctrines of their own Christian faith traditions, they believe in apostolic succession. Apostles after the 12 apostles in the same line, in the same vein. I'm going to explain that in detail. Now, I could have, I, I, I could have actually, I did originally, just summarize or surmise a definition of apostolic succession for you. And I was just going to read it to you at this point in the sermon. But after some prayerful thought, I found it seriously lacking. And so I've come up with a more intelligent definition that I'd like to read to you. There's a pun with the word intelligent that we'll get to in a moment. That's why I said it that way, okay? This definition isn't too long, a couple minutes, and it contains all of the correct information. I checked and double-checked it about apostolic succession and everything that I would like you to know about apostolic succession. So I chose it over my own definition is what I'm trying to say. And I'm going to read it to you now, okay? Quote, apostolic succession as defined by the Roman Catholic Church refers to the unbroken line of bishops beginning with the apostles themselves who have received the sacrament of holy orders, that's capital H, capital O, in the Catholic Church, the sacrament of holy orders, and continue to pass on the spiritual authority, teaching, and governing powers entrusted to them by Christ. It is believed that this succession of bishops maintains the continuity of the church's apostolic tradition, including the power to administer sacraments and guide the faithful. 
According to the Catholic understanding, Jesus Christ appointed the apostles as the foundation of the church, giving them the authority to teach, govern, and sanctify. Through the sacrament of holy orders, this authority was passed down from one generation of bishops to the next through a laying on of hands and the prayer of consecration. I'm still reading. Almost done. This process ensures ensures that the bishops possess the fullness of the ministerial priesthood and are considered the legitimate successors of the apostles. The Catholic Church holds that the apostolic succession is essential for the validity of the sacraments and the preservation of the church's teaching authority. It is believed that the Holy Spirit works through this succession, guaranteeing the preservation of the deposit of faith and the transmission of divine grace to the faithful. The Pope, as the Bishop of Rome, and the successor of St. Peter, holds a unique position within the apostolic succession. He is considered the vicar of Christ on earth and exercises supreme authority over the entire church. Other bishops, while equal in their sacramental powers, are subject to the Pope's primacy and are expected to maintain communion with him and with one another in matters of faith and discipline. Overall, closing now, overall apostolic succession, as understood by the Roman Catholic Church, serves as a foundational principle that ensures the church's continuity, unity, and fidelity to the teachings of Christ and the apostles. That's a somewhat comprehensive, but yet succinct definition of apostolic succession. Remember when I said there would be a pun on the word intelligent. That ditty that I just sang for you on apostolic succession um, is word for word. I read it word for word from OpenAI's chat GPT. Artificial intelligence. Get it? Okay. With me? AI stands for artificial intelligence. Okay. Remember when I said... um, I said to you that I've checked it and double-checked it. I did. And, and if you're going to use chatbots, um, any artificial intelligence chatbot, you're going to learn very quickly that you've got to check everything that it says. Most of the time, it says everything correctly. But some of the time, it gets it way bad. Uh, about a month ago, I asked... Um, OpenAI's chat GPT this question. I said, name some popular American patriotic sayings and slogans. The first two that it listed, the first one was from Antifa. 
And the second one was from Black Lives Matter. So don't take chat GPT as gospel. But in regard to apostolic succession, it nailed it. It really did. So what I really wanted you to see there was that the hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church from the Pope down to the cardinals, to the bishops, then priests is believed to be in apostolic succession from the 12 apostles themselves, having begun with Jesus. And that's bad. My personal artificial intelligence, which is 99% artificial and 1% intelligent, my opinion to all of that can be summed up uh, in the words of the highly esteemed church father, Tertullian, who lived 155 to 220 AD. Now think, that's pretty early, okay? 155 to 220. He said this, quote, the church is founded on the blood of the martyrs, not the chair of Peter. For those of you who might not, not be aware, According to the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, as I just read, is believed to be the successor of Peter. And the Pope, when speaking, uh, ex cathartha, okay, it's E-X space C-A-T-H-E-D-R-A, ex cathartha, for those former Catholics out there, um, which means from the chair, when the Pope speaks from, the, from his chair, ex cathartha, it's believed to be infallible. What he says is believed to be infallible. In matters of what? Faith and morals and doctrine. So his office as the successor of the Apostle Peter is invoked when he speaks of church doctrine and dogma from that chair. So whatever doctrine he hands down to the Roman Catholic Church from his position is gospel until he says otherwise and no one else can weigh in and no one else can change it Mary as intercessor Mary as perpetual virgin Mary as co-redemptrix with Jesus no problem the Pope says it's official doctrine and so now it's official Priests can't marry. Padre Pio, the saint with the stigmata, no problem. He's just, he just dictates whatever pertains to these things and what he says goes. By the way, the Pope handed down the doctrine of ex cathartha. So there you go. So all of that, everything that I just went over with you here this morning thus far had its beginning, it had its beginning in one passage of Scripture. Matthew 18, 16 through 30. It is here that Jesus says the following. I'm not going to read it all, just the pertinent verses. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In context, folks, this is the most important part. In context, this account isn't even about apostolic succession. It's got nothing to do with it. It's about church discipline. And when Jesus says, whatever you bind, whatever you loosen, he's telling the disciples, whatever decisions that you make, that you ratify here on earth in regard to this church discipline, it'll be ratified in heaven. In other words, I, I'll agree with it. I'm giving you that authority. That's what that chapter's about. So you have an entire Christian denomination, the largest one in the world, and their apostolic succession is based upon misinterpreted scripture. Yet another reason why it's so important to interpret scripture with scripture and in context. Okay, let's put the Catholics on the back burner and let's concern ourselves with the good old Protestants now. What about the Protestants in regard to apostleship? When we think of Protestants, we typically have evangelical Protestants in mind. We could be thinking that anyone who is not Roman Catholic is a Protestant. That's what I was raised to believe during my eight, um, eight years of Catholic grade school. And as a Roman Catholic till I was 18 years old, I was also taught that all Protestants are going to hell. And I just accepted that and believed it. And so did everybody else that I knew because that's what the church told us. So let's concentrate our remaining time on the evangelicals who espouse apostolic succession and espouse things about apostleship that are just boop, boop, out there, okay? It's very, very different from the Roman Catholic Church that's another reason why we need to know it. The two aren't even in the same universe. It's insane, okay? Evangelicals, um, wait, let me back up. The teaching or notion of apostolic succession posited today by evangelicals is becoming, as I said in the very beginning of the sermon, more and more prevalent but it is subsequently becoming more and more dangerous, especially to young, unassuming Christians or new believers. Always remember, folks, as false teachers increase, false doctrines increase. And this particular false doctrine or false teaching of apostolic succession is currently very free and very loose within 
our evangelical community. And I would go as far as to say it's very bizarre, as you will see in a moment. Before we get into this, please keep in the forefront of your mind why it is that we are doing this in the first place. The Apostle Paul claims to be an apostle in our text of 1 Corinthians 9.1. He not only claims to be an apostle after the same office as the 12 apostles chosen by Christ, but he also makes claims about his apostleship, claims that only could be made by the 12 apostles or by an apostle in the same vein as the 12. And remember last week, Paul saw the risen Christ. He saw him. Paul was given a special commission by our Lord, and Paul performed many miracles, as we read last week, just like the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. As so-called apostles in the Protestant evangelical world, men and women today claim to be closer to God than the average Christian. They claim to hear and see special revelations from God in dreams, visions, trances, prophecy, words of knowledge, etc., etc. If you want to experience all that in one service, go to a United Pentecostal Church service or go to one of the Assembly of God Church services that are a little bit more free. Because according to them, they have God's ear, according to these apostles within evangelicalism. They have God's ear. God speaks to them more so than he speaks to you and me. Why? Because they're apostles, silly. That's what they'll tell you. That's exactly what they'll tell you if you question them. They'll say, well, I'm an apostle. And they also claim to have the special power from God to perform miracles and signs and wonders and even raise the dead. They can give special blessings and in some, some instances, if the planets are aligned, they can even transfer their God-given apostolic power to you in special instances, of course, and just for a short season. They're not going to give up their bling-bling to you completely, right? So who are these people that I speak of? Well, as I said, you could see them everywhere on TV and the internet, but if you go to YouTube, which is what I was saying before, um, you can actually see men and women who are called apostles. Uh, I mean, you can blatantly see that it's what they're doing is fake on the video, um, especially the videos where they're raising the dead. Anyway, I'm not saying that God can't raise the dead. I'm just saying he's not going to raise the dead through these guys. So, there's one group of male and female apostles who, by the way, also call themselves prophets and prophetesses who are very 
I'm just describing one group, one large group. They're very flashy and very much into the prosperity gospel and everything that goes with it. Divine health, abundance, material blessings, planting uh, faith seeds, planting financial seeds, sowing and reaping, breaking the back of poverty, breaking generational curses, all buzz phrases for delete, 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 or get out of the way. So there seems to be a divide in this group, though, of Protestant evangelicals calling themselves apostles. Listen carefully. Half of them, this is just my observance. I've been to quite a few of these types of services. Half of them are Caucasian. They have Caucasian pastors who either call themselves prophets and or apostles. And then there's another group of them, okay, who are typically African-Americans who are led by African-American pastors who are calling themselves the same, apostles and prophets. And I've been in these churches, I've actually, we've actually done ministry for a very short period of time, not this church, our campus ministry did ministry with them for a short time. And I'm talking about, it was just homeless ministry where they showed up, we showed up, there was a common stash of coats and socks and hats and mittens and we, and food. And we partnered together to pass those out. So I've been around them. And here's what I want you to see. Although they appear, these two groups, to be separated by race, they're not. They're separated by culture. Everything about their respective cultures are different from the foods that they like to the cars that they drive and the clothes that they wear. They're just culturally different. And like most people, they stick with what and who is of like mind with them or like culture with them. But trust me, as having worked with both, there's no segregation due to race. And I'm making a point out of that for one reason and one reason only. Because there are people in America right now who are doing their very best to create racism. And they're doing their very best to create it to a degree that it doesn't exist but they want it to exist because it's politically advantageous for them to have it exist. And I'm telling you, these people, they love each other. I've seen them together. They're not racists. They just come from different cultures and that's it, okay? Um, So if you see somebody capitalizing on the race issue in that regard, correct them, please, for me. But, okay. Um, there's another group that call themselves evangelical apostles, Protestant apostles. And they espouse a very legalistic approach. They're completely different than the other groups that I mentioned 
that are health, wealth, and prosperity gospel-based, okay? These guys that I'm talking about now, not necessarily health, wealth, and prosperity-based, okay? Um, they're legalism-based. They're very akin to what we would call the holiness movement. How many of you have heard of the holiness movement? Nobody, okay. Um, the holiness movement was began and was coined it, at the end of the 19th century, very end of the 19th century, and beginning 1901 through 1906 of the 20th century um, with the Azusa Street Revival in California and um, the teaching of strong holiness doctrine, which actually came out of the Methodist Church. Um, and with these groups, when I say legalism, I'm going to explain what I mean, okay? Um, just bear with me. These groups are very much into divorcing themselves from the world as much as possible and in a legalistic sense, meaning you may not see them on TV uh, or on the Internet because they typically shun television and the Internet and they consider it to be too worldly, and so they don't. They either don't use it or they don't get caught up in it. Another example um, of their divorce from the world is that their women wear plain long dresses that they, they don't wear makeup or jewelry either. Some of them don't even allow uh, wedding rings. They allow they, they they shun wedding rings. The men do not step foot in a church without a coat and a tie, and typically the children are dressed the same way. Um, another group, subgroup within this group, are the Apostolic Pentecostals. And that's what they actually were called in the very beginning. They were called Apostolic Pentecostals. And they pretty much do the same. They live the same way, um, shun the world. Both groups refrain from drinking alcohol, using tobacco, watching movies, dancing. These are all no-nos with these people. And you may be thinking at this point, or at least I hope some of you are, you know, doesn't the Bible teach us to divorce ourselves from the world? Isn't that a good thing? Uh, aren't they just living a holy life, Mike? Uh, doesn't First John say somewhere that to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God? Yes. But as we will see in a moment, it's the motive and the intent behind not doing these things, not the things themselves. Make sense? Okay. Examples. These types of churches and movements, they really are movements, actually uh, had their start as spinoffs from churches that many of you have probably heard of, Evangelical Wesleyan Methodists, A-M-E Methodists, which are black churches, okay? Um, these come out, the holiness part, the divorcing from the world part, largely comes out, out from the teaching of John Wesley. How many of you have heard of John Wesley? Okay. Um, and you may remember some of these names, all right? Church of God, Church of God in Christ, um, assemblies of God, 
which came out of the Church of God, actually. Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, Salvation Army, Church of the Nazarene, okay? And Oneness Pentecostals, who, by the way, the Oneness Pentecostals are often grouped in with these other guys, but they're not, they're heretical. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in modalism. So they appear to be Christian Pentecostals, but many of them don't even understand um, what modalism is and the fact that they don't believe in a traditional doctrine of the Trinity. Different sermon. So anyway, we put all of those in what's called the holiness category, holiness movement category. They all vary or have varying degrees of legalism. There's no flash at all like the other ones I described. What they deem as holy, okay, we deem as holy. But they take it to an extreme. You probably wouldn't find any of them doing the bunny hop or the polka at a Polish wedding. Uh, you certainly wouldn't find them in a movie theater, okay? The way that these groups view sin reminds me of something that I heard John Piper say when he was talking about sin. I think it fits like a glove for what I'm trying to convey here. This is in reference to shunning everything that's worldly. Again, it's the motive and the reasoning behind it. John Piper said, quote, the only way sin can be broken in one's life is by the promise of a superior pleasure. He goes on, a willpower conquering of sin is not a conquering of sin. It's an exaltation of self. I'm going to say that again. A willpower conquering of sin is not a conquering of sin. It's an exaltation of self. Then he says, there has to be the power of a superior pleasure. His name is Jesus, end quote. In other words, you can conquer your sin over and over and over again in a legalistic manner with your own willpower, and you will be no different than a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, or a Muslim. And they also don't go to movies, and they also wear modest clothing and don't wear jewelry, a lot of them. They all believe in a salvation that is based upon one conquering their own sin as a repeated act of willpower. Folks, that makes for a very miserable life of legalistic do's and don'ts. The Bible does not teach that. What does the Bible teach? The Bible does not teach that conquering sin by your own willpower gives way to true saving faith. The Bible teaches that true saving faith gives way to a life of holiness because Jesus conquered your sin for you on Calvary's cross. And we not only understand that, but we also live and move and have our being in that. The Bible teaches that you not only can't 
conquer your sin, but you can't even keep yourself from sinning for 10 stinking minutes. Try it sometime. And that's why the Bible teaches that Jesus conquered sin for you once. Once and for all time. Wait, there's more. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, my pillow 2.0. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this stinking flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, through legalism, through do's and don'ts, then Christ died needlessly. Righteousness doesn't come as a result of whether or not you do the bunny hop. Righteousness doesn't come as a result of you not being seen in a movie theater or as a result of you foregoing the dance floor at your high school reunion. Your righteousness comes from Christ. And as John Piper rightly says, Christ is your superior pleasure. Jesus is your all in all. You look to him and his perfect, sinless life and atoning death for you, and you cry out, Oh, Lord, Jesus, my pleasure is in you. You conquered my sin. You took my sin upon yourself on that cross. You took the wrath of the Father in my stead. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we we might become the righteousness of God in him. It ain't you. And it surely isn't your apostolic office or your legalism, your holiness movement, or any legalistic do's and don'ts that you claim to go with that office. No, it's Christ and Christ alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, but by his, the Father's doing, by the Father's doing, you are in. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, I haven't been in a movie theater for 35 years. Okay. You're going to boast in that? No. You boast in Christ. 
not in your own conquering righteousness. That kind, listen, that kind of righteousness is actually blasphemous. Do you know why? Because you did nothing and Christ did it all. (laughs) You're trying to steal his glory. Okay? You're trying to boast as if you did something when in reality you didn't do anything. It was all Christ. You're attributing that to yourself, which was already done by the incarnate God-man. How dare we think for one second that our works somehow trump Christ's willful broken body and spilled blood on that cross? What time is it? Why am I taking this inroad legalistic Christians who call themselves apostles, health, wealth, and prosperity groups that call themselves apostles? I'm trying to set the table, I guess. Do you remember when I talked about the real money and the counterfeit money and said that, you know, bank tellers, they give them the real money so they could recognize the counterfeit money? It's the same here. I've been talking about genuine, I talked about genuine salvation first. Hopefully, I did a good enough job for you to be able to recognize the counterfeit salvation. If I talk about the real salvation enough, people will get, be able to recognize the counterfeit salvation. These groups that I just talked about within Protestantism, last thing I'll say, they are all over the map with the word apostle. At least the Catholics have one unwavering, erroneous, blasphemous doctrine about apostolic succession. They got one. These Protestants, they wouldn't understand apostolic succession if it came up to them and kicked them in the teeth. They have no idea what it is. And they don't understand the word apostle in Ephesians 4, ambassador, messenger, sent, missionary, God's emissary, to an unreached people, they don't get that. They all use the word apostle pretty much the same way. They use it to denote authority. For them, it's a synonym for the word bishop and the word pastor. That's why they also call themselves prophets. You'll see one, these groups I just talked about in Protestantism, they all call themselves not only apostles, the the pastors are apostles, by the way, and the bishops are apostles. But they call themselves prophets and prophetesses because that's important. You understand? I'm an apostle. I hear from God. I'm a prophet. I hear from God. You need to pay attention to me because I hear from God. So they like that word too, prophet. 
And it's just another word for I'm the big cheese, you know, I'm in charge. So when we look at, there's a new movement um, called the New Apostolic Reformation. I, I was going to get into it, but we don't have time. Look it up if you're interested. NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, puts forth the teaching that um, there's a new apostolic reformation that is taking place right now. And God is appointing new apostles and new prophets in this new apostolic reformation. And um, these guys and gals, there's also female apostles, they claim to be able to perform miraculous signs just like the 12. And that's something I just want you to be aware of because it's out there in case you have any Christian friends that buy into that. You can tell them that it's not legit, okay? So we're going to stop here. Um, I hope you see that there's two ways apostles used. Apostolic office after the model of the 12 and apostle, apostle after the model of an ambassador sent or a missionary. Um, we'll get into that more when we get into spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you think I'm selling you short now from stopping a little bit early, well, I'm stopping early in what I have prepared. I'm not stopping early. I think I went 40 minutes so far, did I? I don't know. 49 minutes. Whoa, okay. All right. Don't want to get in trouble with anybody, so...